Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Good morning. It's Wednesday. Do you know we told August everybody- August 9th. On Friday. Today is Wednesday, August 9th, Pastor PJ. Yeah, we told everybody on Saturday that it was Friday. Yeah, today is Wednesday, August 9th. But it was really a brilliant move on our part. You uh, know why? I, uh, I'm waiting to hear. Because how many people came up to you and said, hey, it's it, you said it was Friday when it was Saturday? Actually, all of none. Really? <laughs> no one came up to you? No one. I think they put it down at your feet. They probably did. I'm just going to say, you know what? Maybe that's the right move. They said it's my fault. But I was going to say it was a win and it was brilliant because it showed us everybody that listens to our podcast. Mm. Me, apparently, everybody that listens they to our podcast. They just wanted to come and complain at you. Yeah. They, le- they left me off the hook. Yeah. We're glad you listened, though. And it is Wednesday. It's not It's not Tuesday. It's not Friday. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. August 9th. Middle of the week. Yeah. How, what do you think about Wednesday? What's what's Each day has its own like weight in a person's mind. What What is Wednesday for you, Pastor Rod? Youth ministry. Ah, yeah. I guess that makes sense, right? <laughs> and that's apropos. Yes, because, because Wednesday today uh, is the the launch of Compass Student Ministry. Yeah, at Compass North Texas, which we're really excited about. Yeah, I yeah. can't wait to jump into it, man. I'm really I'm pumped. It, it feels like putting on a, a comfy sweater. It's like, oh, there it is. Yeah. You know, because I haven't done this for I guess uh, about a year, a little over a year now, uh, as we prepared to launch last year. I was moved out of youth ministry, and now I'm jumping back into it. Hopefully not forever. Hopefully not forever, although I do love youth ministry, so you might have to have a hard time getting me out of it. But I, I am excited to to start something new here. You're going to be 80 years old with your walker going yeah, in. You youngins, you gen. Summer camp. Tears. <laughs> summer. <laughs> hey, man, we have Pastor Mike do our, our summer camp every year, and he's like, what, 65, 70 now? Yeah, something up there. Somewhere in that yeah. ballpark. Yeah. So that, you'll be doing maybe it. Maybe a little high. <laughs> you'll be doing it. <laughs> I don't know, man. The senior lead pastor. Yeah. There will be a true senior pastor at that point. <laughs> <Nice>. Senior <laughs> <Nice>. pastor. <laughs> well, hey, we are in Psalm 85 and 86 and, and 87 today. And, and Romans 9. Try, stop trying to skip it. I felt, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to skip it. But like, oh, what Romans 9? We're just going to do Old Testament today. <laughs> no, we'll get to Romans 9 as well. Didn't you write your doctoral dissertation on Romans 9? I did. I did. Mm. I did. So. I did. I feel like we're going to spend some time on that. I'm, I'm not even going to say anything from Romans 9. I'm just going to shut my mouth just and just listen. listen. Yeah. You would lay out on Romans 9. All right. Hey, Psalm 85. Uh, Psalm 85, just a reminder here. It's helpful to be uh, uh, encouraged to to think about the, these superscripts from time to time. And it says the Psalm of the Sons of Korah. That's a pretty broad, generic uh, category there. We It doesn't really narrow things down for us, even like Asaph, right? I mean, and we've talked recently about Asaph. Where was Asaph? Were there multiple Asaphs? Because it seems like there were some that were earlier, and maybe he's writing about exile as well. But Sons of Korah was a, a designation for the descendants of this Levitical uh, priest named Korah, who was uh, they were tasked with the music for the temple. And so uh, this could be, you know, really any time frame in uh, in that window there. And when we read the psalm, it really seems that, that they're in a situation, whether they're in exile or not, I, it's, it's hard to tell, but things are not good for Israel um, because this whole psalm is a, a plea for God to bring Israel back to her former glory. So maybe this is divided kingdom. Maybe this is just the, the things are, are not good potentially even under um, 
the the reign of David and him running for his life. Feels like this happens a lot. Yeah, we're not sure exactly all that to say what what the time frame is for this psalm, but its sentiment is is great. I mean, verse four, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Verse six, revive us again. Show us your steadfast love. Uh, I was encouraged by verse nine. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Yeah, I got Just that too. A, a good reminder to us that uh, that the, the fear of the Lord is, is good and right. I, I remember talking with somebody back in California that said the fear of the Lord is not for Christians. I've heard that multiple times. In fact, uh, I would, I've heard, heard people say that uh, fear is actually a sinful response to God under the new covenant because we're not in the same relationship. Yeah, and, and I, I guess I, I, I have never bought into their argumentation there. I think we are encouraged to fear the Lord. Um, even Peter, what does Peter say? He says, conduct yourselves with fear fear throughout the time of your exile, right? And fear of who? Not Not fear of man, not fear of the world, not fear of the devil, not fear of the enemy, but fear of God. So, I don't think there's a disconnect. I think as believers, it's right and good for us still to have a fear of God. Um, what kind of fear? Flesh that out. What should that fear look like, sound like, feel like even? Is yeah, it the same kind of fear we're used to? It's a, it's a not a fear that produces an anxiety that says, what, what's going to happen? What if? It's not a fear of, oh man, this one is is a threat to my life and I'm fearful and I need to preserve my life. It's a fear that recognizes the power and the awesomeness of God and just says, okay, God, I, I, I respect you. I want to abide by your, your guidance in my life. I love you. I'm devoted to you. Um, it's that kind of a fear. So in no sense would you use it in its traditional form to be afraid of. I, I really don't think there's a, that kind of a fear there. In fact, John says perfect love casts out fear. And that fear is a fear of judgment that John's fear of condemnation. talking about, right? Fear of condemnation. Right. So if we no longer have a fear of condemnation, Romans 8.1, uh, or a fear of judgment, then I don't think we fear in that traditional sense of the word. Would you agree with Tim Keller? He writes here, uh, obviously to be in fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word does have overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed or to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That's from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Would you agree with that? Would you add to that? Would you add or take away anything from that? No, I, I, I think that's helpful. Um, I wasn't sure where he was going towards the end there, but I made me think of the the throne room in Isaiah 6. The 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 overwhelmed um fear that Isaiah had and I think there's uh, there's a differentiation even to be made there because Isaiah uh, until the angel was dispatched with the coal from the altar to touch his lips Isaiah was fearful that God was going to consume him in his holiness. But I, I do think that reverence, I do think that awe, I do think that, I mean, look at John in the in the book of Revelation. John is falling down in the at the feet of angels. Yeah. And if, if that's his response in front of an angelic being as somebody who was atoned for, as somebody who was a believer at that point, I can only imagine what it's going to be like when we're in the presence of God himself. Well, what about those passages that speak about God as Father? And it's, uh, you know, we draw near to him, we call him Abba, Father, and... You might have heard, maybe you've even preached it before, Pastor PJ, where people say, well, Abba is like saying daddy. Uh, maybe that's an over-sappy, sentimental form of understanding our relationship with God. But would you agree with that? Is that something we should do? Yeah, it's 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 there. I, I've always preached Abba as it was a term reserved for intimate family. 
I think, yeah, when people say daddy God and things, I, it, it <laughs> kind of makes my skin crawl. That makes bit. me feel weird, yeah. man. Even you just saying it, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it is right that it's a term of intimate familiarity. And that's the that's a, a paradox in Christianity, that, that we fear God, that there's a reverence and a respect, and yet there's this intimacy. And yet, if you grew up with a godly father at home, um, you, you understand this. You had a fear and a respect and a love for your, your dad. That made you say, I, I want to please him. I want to do what's right. And there was even an awareness that, man, if I do something wrong, he's going to discipline me. But you wouldn't give him a noogie. I wouldn't give him a noogie. No. It, it, balance that, though, with this intimacy of going when you're that little child that you can crawl up in your dad's lap and you've got that that familiarity, that love with him. So there's this, mm. this duality in our relationship with God where we completely trust him and there is no fear of being cast out from his presence because we belong to him, because he is our father because he is our Abba. And, and yet there's that, that fear that marks our lives to say, okay, we want to respect him and love him and, and walk in obedience to him at the same time. So one of our distinctives is that we have a high view of God. And part of that high view means that we do encourage and endorse and undergird the fear of God with the word of God. We don't want anyone to be confused about that. We are a church that does seek to hold him in high esteem because as we've said before, the Bible holds God in high esteem. We don't want to violate God in any way by thinking of him in lowly, uh, categorically human-only terms, even though you might say, well, Jesus embodied himself in humanity, which is the glory of it all. He didn't have to do that, and he put himself in a very lowly estate in order to reach us and to meet us where we are so that he might reveal the Father to us. But that doesn't mean we should ever take God and make him low and human-like. I kind of get a little offended when I see those Jesus... uh, I don't know, action figures that sit on people's Jesus dashboards. Jesus is my homeboy. Yeah, Jesus yeah. is my homeboy. Jesus is my co-pilot. You know, Jesus take the wheel. And I understand that I don't think people are deliberately trying to be offensive. They're, they're talking about Jesus in overly familial terms. And I think there is something to be said about having that intimacy, that Abba-type father connection with, with God, but never getting so close to the line that we're just over-familiarizing him. We're making him something like a, a, a BFF and not the Lord of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Psalm 86, uh, such a, a good one here. Um, David comes back. And so remember, at the, the last psalm before the break between book two and book three, and forgive me, I can't remember exactly which psalm that was off the top of my head, but it said the, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Are ended. And yet here we see David come back in Psalm 86. and <laughs> LOL, just, kiss, yeah, just kidding. <laughs> you go back to that psalm. Yes, um, he's back. You'll remember that Pastor Rod and I talked about that, how this is evidence of there being an editor in the compilation of the book of Psalms. That's right. So um, don't, don't freak out here and think, oh, this no. This is a different David. This is a different David, or the Bible's wrong because it said the prayers were already ended. No, this is, this is David. This is just where the editor put Psalm 86 here. Um, and the, the Psalm is, uh, again, familiar with David. David's in a, a tight spot. He's in a difficult situation, and he's asking God to preserve him, to be gracious to him, to gladden his soul, for God is good and forgiving. And yet, what's so great about this, and I think really the culmination of this Psalm is in verse 11. That even there, even as David is fearful, even as David is crying out for God to preserve his life, he still wants God to instruct him and to teach him and to help him that he might learn to, we've been talking about this just now, fear the name of God. Mm. So in verse 11, it says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's a great prayer. It's a prayer for for all of us. Uh, That my heart wouldn't be... 
uh, wouldn't want to go after anything else but God, that I would be fully devoted to him, that mm-hmm. my whole life, heart, inner being, whole self would be all about fearing God, that I wouldn't have a, a compartment in my life that's about fearing man or that's about materialism or that's about some other idol in my life, but that everything would be completely about God. And that's why this is a good prayer for us to pray um, continually because we need that. We need that ongoing renovation of the Spirit's work in our lives to cause us to be fully devoted to the Lord. It's kind of a helpful admission from King David. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is a man after God's own heart, and yet yeah. here he's praying, unite my heart to fear your name. Even David, yeah. the uh, the prefigurement of Christ, had to acknowledge my heart is divided and fractured to different loyalties. Yeah. And therefore, man, what a great prayer that we should emulate in our prayer time. Yeah, you may have found a familiar verse there in Exodus, or in, in Exodus, in Psalm 86, 15, <laughs> which calls back to Exodus 34, 6. In Exodus 34, 6, in that chapter there, Moses asked, can I see you, God? He wants to see God. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock and passes before him and declares his name as he passes by. And Mm -hmm. this is part of what he declares, that God is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what I think is so cool about that is, is not just all of the attributes of God that that unpacks for us, which those things are amazing. It's amazing that the creator of the universe, the perfectly holy God is also merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Praise God. He is slow to anger. I thank him for that every single day, um, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But what's so cool about this too, is it shows that David knew his Bible, right? David knew the Torah. He knew Exodus 34 and was calling that to mind here as he's praying to God and in writing this Psalm, which is pretty cool. Yeah. He had it ingrained, memorized. Yeah. So that's Psalm 86, just a, a great one for us to, uh, to return to time and time again, especially verse 11 there. Psalm 87 um, is a, a psalm kind of just, it, it's, it's praising God by praising Jerusalem, praising Zion, the city of God, the city where God would cause his name uh, to dwell. And so it's a short psalm, but it's a psalm that Surprising, is though. exalting him. Surprising in what sense? We'll take a look at verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and mm. Babylon mm-hmm. and Philistia and Tyre and Cush. These are not Israelite cities. Right. In fact, Rahab was uh, oftentimes a, a standard name for Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so you have Egyptians, you've got Babylonians. Rahab got and, and a mythical sea creature yes. on top of that. So yep. don't get that confused. Right. Because we see that in another one of our Psalms, I think maybe tomorrow. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, Gentiles are there, which is really encouraging. It's a hint toward what would be the future. Towards. I mean, you're a Gentile. I'm, a, I'm mostly a Gentile, even though I do have a little bit of Jewish in me. Uh, we are here because of passages like this, where God was making clear to Israel, hey, it's not just about us. It's going to be about the nations in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Which, speaking of, Paul's addressing that in our New Testament reading. He's beginning to deal with, okay, Paul, the law's not our source of justification. So what do we do? What, what, what of Israel now? Is Israel just off uh, out of the picture is is are we done dealing with israel is god done dealing with israel what are we supposed to do here we go romans chapter 9 all right i'm gonna take a break i'm gonna unplug my microphone you're gonna just run away here I go. disclaimer <laughs> these opinions are is solely those expressed by the i Bible. distance myself from this <laughs> just kidding hey the beginning of romans 9 has always just left me uh, shocked i mean paul here he he expresses this statement that is is amazing and it shows his heart and his love for his own people when he says i i wish that i myself were accursed and cut off from christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh in other words he's saying there i would give my salvation if i could if it would mean that i could guarantee the salvation of all the rest of of my jewish countrymen that's a love that that is 
talk about a missional heart. That is phenomenal to, to hear that. Can I ask you to clarify then? Verse three says, for I could wish. It's such a strange phrasing. I thought, okay, is Paul saying that I do wish this? Or if push came to shove, if I had the opportunity, I could wish this. Is that how we should understand it? Right. Yeah. It, it, Paul's not suggesting that somehow he, this is a real hypothetical scenario or, or a real hypothetical. <laughs> it's, it's not a real scenario where he could actually say, okay, God, I'll give my salvation for the salvation of all of them. He's simply expressing how much he loves his kinsmen, his countrymen here. And so he's, he's saying, look, this is how much I love them. If this were even possible, I would you know, do this. Uh, this is not Paul you know, selling his soul to Satan in exchange for, you know, something else or giving up his salvation in exchange for the, the salvation of others. That's not what we're reading. We're re- really just reading the, the heart of Paul. But then he goes on to praise Israel here. They are the Israelites and to them present tense. Okay. That's an important distinction here that we need to remember to them presently belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all blessed forever. So Paul's establishing here. We're not throwing Israel out. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater of justification by the law. There's still a purpose for Israel, but then he's got to explain, okay, so then what, what of the Jewish people that are still trying to justify themselves by the law? Are they still God's people? Are they still part of the promise? And this is where in Romans nine, he begins to differentiate and he begins to get into the concept here that not all are children of Israel. Not all Israel is, is natural Israel. He says that in verse six, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. So here Paul's saying, look, what do we do with those Jewish people that are intent and still hell bent on obeying the law as the source of their justification? Are, are, are they in agreement with the scriptures? What do we do? Because you're telling us that that's wrong. And so is all of Israel wrong? And Paul's saying, no, not all of Israel is wrong. But there's a distinction. There's the children of the promise and the children that are natural children of Israel. What does children of the promise mean? Children of the promise goes back to uh, Genesis 12. And Abraham's the, the promise God made to Abraham that when he said, through you, Abraham, shall all the descendants of the earth be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant, as it goes on then in chapter 15 as well, when Abraham has promised these numerous descendants, Paul's introducing here, it's it's not simply about DNA and genetics and biology here, that it's about the, the true children of the promise. And those that are, are trying to live according to the law are betraying that they're not actually truly children of the promise. He goes on from here to explain God's plan then, because the question is, okay, then what differentiates? What causes some to be the children of the promise and others to fall short of that? Why is it that way? And he begins to introduce, admittedly, a difficult doctrine regarding the character and actions of God. But it's one that is biblical, and I, and I think when we read the, the text, we've got to see that. And he introduces this with an example. He says this. He talks about Rebecca, and he says in verse 10, and not only so, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election okay, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on the part of God? So Paul's introducing a difficult concept here that God chooses, God elects, not based on what has been done, 
but on his choice, on his decision, on his will. And that's his concept here with Jacob and Esau. So if that's the case, then uh, I can imagine someone saying, and I think Paul's going to uh, assume Anticipate. that this happens. He's yep. anticipating this, but someone's going to say, well, it, it sounds like what you're saying, Pastor PJ, and what Paul is saying is that someone's salvation is really entirely dependent upon God selecting someone to be saved. That's the case. Why even try? Why, why repent? Why turn to Christ? If that's what, who God is. And at that point, everyone, it doesn't matter. It's all nihilistic where it's all in basically nothing. Why even do anything at all? Right. Um, I'm going to ask you to tune in tomorrow for the answer to that question, because in Romans 10, he's going to get to that and we're going to bring all this together. But I want to develop this a little bit further because Paul's initial anticipated response from people is that's not fair. Right. And that may be what you're feeling. listening to this right now going, that's not fair that God God loves and hates at the same time and not choose everyone. Loving Jacob, hating Esau. And, and that's where we come into verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, for all of our libertarian free will friends out there, in other words, all of our friends that would say salvation is totally an act of an individual's choice, free choice to choose to trust Jesus, that God is not sovereign over that at all. We have a lot of problems here for them with verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he talks about Pharaoh. And here's a, a, a even harder thing for us to wrap our minds around. Here he says that God, well, God says that he raised Pharaoh up, created Pharaoh in order simply to show his glory and get power over Pharaoh. That was Pharaoh's purpose in the, the world was not that he would ever bow the knee to God was not that he would ever repent from his sins and trust for forgiveness of his sins. But his purpose, his whole purpose created by God was that God would be able to get glory through him and over him. Is it appropriate to feel really icky about that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, icky, it's important. It's appropriate I'm uncomfortable. to feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Because we, in, in, yeah, we don't understand the mind of God. We don't understand the heart of God. And so it's difficult for us to... Exhaustively, that yeah, is. Yeah, exhaustively. It's difficult for us to understand what this looks like. And, and that's where Paul goes in verse 19. He's going to say, well, then why does he still find fault if it's not based on my will or exertion, but it's right. based simply on him? And that's when Paul gets into this famous statement when he says, who are you to say to the, the, the one, to the creator, how dare you make me for this purpose? And he introduces this concept of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, which is an even more difficult concept, and then vessels of mercy. And let me just boil it down this way. Essentially, Paul's argument, as he's laying it out here, as the Holy Spirit is writing these things through Paul, is this. God has prepared vessels of destruction. Okay, that's, that's humans. That's human beings that he's talking about here. For destruction, so that the vessels of mercy might give him even more glory when they see his wrath poured out on the vessels of destruction. You, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. But we have, to, we have to deal with Romans 9. We have to read Romans 9. We have to understand Romans 9. And, and really, unless we're wanting to do a bunch of hermeneutical gymnastics, interpretive gymnastics, Romans 9, Paul's making a pretty plain argument here, saying God is all about his own glory. That's, that's what this is all boils down to. It's not about what's fair or not fair according to our perspectives, right? And even our minds that we have right now that where the synapses are firing and we're making decisions in our minds to say that's not fair. Our minds are finite. 
Our minds are created by an infinite God, by an infinite creator who fully understands what he's doing and everything that he's doing is good and everything that he's doing is for his glory. And so this is not comfortable. It's not pleasant. It's not what you lead with when you sit down to share the gospel with someone. Hmm. It's not what you lead with with a brand new baby Christian. This is, we're wading into the deep, deep, deep end of theology right now in the, the study of God's nature. But it's important for us to understand because Paul's explaining why things are going the way they're going, why it looks like God has set aside Israel for right now and he's doing something different and he's trying to explain this is why it looks like there's a bunch of people in Israel that are going the wrong direction right now. Paul's saying not all of Israel is true Israel. There are those that God has chosen according to the promise for his glory, vessels of mercy, and he's still working with them. And there's going to be a future where he's going to work with Israel even more. And we're going to get to that in chapter 11 and chapter 12 especially. But for now... When you see this differentiation, understand that it's God that it's work. It's not the Bible has failed. It's not God has failed. It's not that humanity has thwarted his saving purposes. It's that God is working his will and his plan out right now. So I have one observation and one question for you, Pastor Pijo. Yeah. Observation uh, in verse 20. When Paul anticipates that someone's going to say, why does he still find fault? Notice in verse 20 that Paul doesn't offer an answer to that. Paul's answer is that's above your pay grade, buddy. Right. You don't get a you don't get to say that. You're not God. You don't have God's mind. You don't have God's infinite thinking and understanding about how the entire creation wraps up. So notice here God God in his divine sovereignty uh, doesn't give us an answer to this. And I think that's on purpose because God doesn't do this on accident. This is on purpose. You don't know, you don't know the answer. The answer is humble yourself. He's God and you're not. Mm-hmm. I have a question about verse 22. Yeah. Paul starts a sentence off with a what if. Mm-hmm. He offers what, is, what seems to be a hypothetical. So you have the, uh, the uh, protasis, pro- protasis, pro- protasis, and the apotasis, the if and then clause. I see the if. Uh, I don't see the, the then clause. I don't see the, uh, the apotasis, the completion of this. But is it possible in verse 22 that Paul is offering a hypothetical without intending to say, and this is exactly how God does it? Is he just saying, hypothetically speaking, what if God wanted to do this? There are times that Paul in writing, for instance, in first Corinthians chapter seven, will say, this is me writing. This is right. my opinion. Um, this isn't, this isn't inspired. He's, he hasn't done that here in Romans nine. And because of the point that he's just made previously in Romans nine, when he holds up as examples, the, uh, the Jacob and Esau situation. Um, and then also the situation of Pharaoh where God very plainly said, look, I created you in order to, to, humble you and wreck you and get glory over you. Right. I, I, I don't think that this is Paul saying, Hey, this is my best explanation of what things going on. I, I, I noticed the, the hypothetical, the, the, the conditional, what if, and yet I, I think this is, I think this is the inspired explanation of what God does. I don't think this is Paul's best shot at <laughs> trying to explain this. And, and cause if it was, he would never, and, and, and here's the thing, y'all, if this was, remember, this is Paul, beginning of Romans chapter 9, saying, I, I wish that everyone were saved. All my countrymen were saved. Right. If this was just Paul's thoughts and opinions, he wouldn't write it this way. Nobody would write it this way. Nobody would write it in such a way as to say, okay, God creates some people that are, are vessels of destruction and others that are vessels of mercy. But but let me just kind of land the plane for us in, in chapter 9 with this these thoughts, if I can. This is so hard. And... Pastor Rod alluded to it earlier in our podcast. Okay, so so then why even bother? Well, here's here's my first answer to that, and then we'll get to the second answer tomorrow when you tune back in. My first answer to this is is this. 
when, when Paul said earlier that God's purposes of election might be shown, right? Here's the, the thing. That role, that, that roster of the elect, the only person that knows that and has that is God. And we don't have that and we never will have that. And so you can't walk outside or you can't look in your church or you can't go to the the neighborhood grocery store and have some understanding of that person's elect, that person's not elect. So, well, if that person's elect, then yeah, I'm going to share the the gospel with that person because they'll be saved. That person's not elect. I'm not going to bother sharing the gospel with that person because they'll never be saved. God in his infinite wisdom didn't give us that knowledge and that understanding. Mm. And so our job is still the great commission. Our job is still to go and share the gospel with everybody because we don't know who will be and who won't be saved. And we're going to talk more tomorrow about why that's, that's not only our job, but why we have to do that for God's saving purposes to be accomplished in people's lives. But for now, this is, this is the, the super behind the scenes of what's going on in the divine Council. This is not something that you sit here and you go, okay, so then where do I bring this in with my gospel presentation to my unsaved coworker? Right. You're not going to sit down with somebody and be like, hey, are you a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy? Mm. But this is what's actually happening. God is not at the, the women will of our women in will. God is ordaining everything and he is sovereign over it all. And all of it, all of it, all of it, including eternal damnation for some is part of his plan for his glory. Seems like all of this would bring us to our knees and cause us to value prayer far more than what we probably currently do. Yes. Yes. Pray for your lost loved ones and family, family members. Yes. Even right now at the end of this podcast would be a great opportunity to do that. Amen to that. All right, guys. Well, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow's not as heavy. Today was a heavy one. Yeah. Heavy one, heavy one, heavy one. Yeah. Tomorrow's not as heavy. So we hope you'll join us again tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Thank you guys for listening and we love you. See you guys. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Mm -hmm.